Well, that was great. Thank you to our kids. It's just fun to hear those scriptures read by our kids. We're in a series, Stolen Identity, and um, as you are, if you've been a, a part of the series at all over the last number of weeks, you've heard kind of my tale of when I began this series, it was like with a week in after the series, I had my identity stolen when I was traveling in Chicago and people were emailing and using my kind of impersonating me, and then we had mail stolen just a few weeks ago, and then Friday, I spent a good part of the day answering texts, did you send me this email about wanting a gift card? I've had, Friday morning, I had a number of them, and I'm I'm trying to process through this, working with Pat, who helped, and and, uh, Pat Olson does a lot of IT stuff. Um, I just want to let you know, if I'm asking you, I'm not going to ask you for a gift card if I send it, I'm going to ask you to transfer the money right to the bank account. That's how you know it's me. No, just, just kidding. If you get an email from me saying I need a gift card or I need something and I'm busy, just disregard it, okay? Um, so anyway, this whole stolen identity series is really important because the moment your identity is stolen is the moment you live beneath what you are and you begin to entertain feelings about yourself that are not true. You see, what you are or who you are determines what you do. And what you believe about you is what you will feel about you. Because you feel what you believe and you do what you are. Okay? Uh, the idea here is, is this idea that you, you feel what you believe. Because if it's late at night and you're lying in your bed and you hear a noise downstairs, you make up in the middle of the night and you hear a noise downstairs, what do you feel if you believe someone's downstairs? You feel fear. And what do you do? You nudge the person next to you who's sleeping and say, did you hear that, right? And that's the craziest thing in the world because they're sleeping and they did hear it. Or, or, or let's just put it this way. You're driving your car and you're going along. You look at your gas tank and it's almost empty. What do you feel? Well, it probably depends on, as you think through it, who drove the car last, right? <laughs> if it's your car, you probably feel a little bit of panic like, I didn't plan on making a stop and trying to find a gas station. Because it is true, you feel what you believe. And you do what you are. So if you're a golden retriever, you seek to please. If It's something you do by nature. If you're a cat, you could care less about pleasing anyone. In fact, I heard a story the other day. I, I don't think it's really in one of the um, ancient manuscripts, but you never know. Um, Adam said to Eve, Adam and Eve said to the Lord, Lord, when we are in the garden, you walked with us every day. Now we do not see you anymore. We're lonesome here and it's difficult for us to remember how much you love us and God said I will create a companion for you that will be with you and who will be a reflection of my love for you so that you will love me even when you cannot see me regardless of how selfish or childish or unlovable you may be this new companion will accept you as you are and you will love and will love you as as I do in spite of yourselves and so God created a new animal to be a companion for Adam and Eve and it was a good animal and God was pleased And the new animal was pleased to be with Adam and Eve, and he wagged his tail. And Adam said, Lord, I've already named all the animals in the kingdom. I I cannot think of a name for this new animal. And God said, I have created this new animal to be a reflection of my love for you, and 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 his name will be a reflection of my own, and you will call him Dog. Kind of backwards, you know. 
And Dog lived with Adam and Eve and was a companion to them and loved them and they were comforted and God was pleased and Dog was content and wagged his tail. And after a while it came to pass and an angel came to the Lord and said, Lord, Adam and Eve have become filled with pride. They strut and preen like peacocks and they believe they are worthy of adoration. Dog has indeed taught them that they are loved and perhaps maybe too well. And God said, I will create for them a companion who will be with them and who will see them as they are. The companion will remind them of their limitations so that they will know that they are not always worthy of adoration. And God created cat to be a companion to Adam and Eve. And cat would not obey them. And when Adam and Eve gazed into cat's eyes, they were reminded that they were not the supreme beings. And Adam and Eve learned humility. And they were greatly improved. And dog, God was pleased and the dog was happy and the cat could care less. He just didn't give a rip. Because that's by nature what cats are. You, you, who you are is what you do. That's what the scripture tells us. That's why our identity is so important to be aware of and to understand and to live with. What we do is a reflection of who we are. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read together again this passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm going to ask you to read this with me from this version, New International Version. We have that. Okay. Let's read it together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God. Second Corinthians 5.17. And from the Living Bible. When someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. All these new things are from God, who brought us back to himself through what Christ Jesus did. I'm going to read one more. for the. It's from the Passion Translation. It says, now if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he's become an entirely new creation. And all that is related to that old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. It's the picture you saw during the offering time or right in that announcement time of that caterpillar who has become a butterfly and that's the exact word that that paul uses often and he he says our old identity our old life of sin the power of satan the religious works of trying to please god our old relationship with the world and our old mindsets we're not reformed we're not refurbished we're not improved we're made new completely new in our union with christ and it is inside of us and it's through our trust in this obedience to God that begins to unveil what is already in us. It's not trying to be that. It's allowing that which Christ has deposited in you as a seed to begin to work itself out through your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask that you would make clear to us more fully what it means to walk in the identity that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the ways to understand your identity is to understand what the New Testament has to say about it, especially the author Paul. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul clarifies for us our identity on a number of occasions by using two little words. He puts two words together. It's a phrase that is used almost 170 times. The scholars will go back from 160 to 170. <clears throat> but the words are in Christ. Paul says this again and again, in Christ. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it is one of Paul's favorite phrases for the follower of Jesus. And this little phrase in Christ means to belong to Jesus, to be in union with him, to be in unity with him. It's a phrase, though, it's a little difficult to comprehend. So one author that I was reading writes, what does Paul really mean to be in Christ? In what ways are we in Christ? There's a list of ways we use the word, if we think of it, this author says, the word in, that helps us understand Paul's phrase of in Christ a little more. And if you'll note that these ins that this author begins to list says something about ourselves. Each one gives us just a little more information of who we are. So when you read through the the word of God, specifically through these New Testament letters, and you see this idea of in Christ, look at that for a moment because it, it is revealing a little bit of who you are. That God says about you. In can describe our welfare. For instance, we may be in love or in pain or in good health or in dire straits. It kind of describes a little bit of what our welfare is like. In can be about our geographic location. Like we may be in Sydney or Nairobi or in Chicago or in some place. In can also relate to what we belong to, what we're positioned within. For instance, in in an institution or an organization. We may be in school, in church. It could be in a hospital, in prison. In can also tell us a little bit about the occupation we're in. People speak of it in this way. We may be in the army or in ministry or in teaching or in banking. You describe yourself a bit by in. In, or more precisely, in too, can tell us our passions and our hobbies. We may be into golf or into crafts or into some other form of recreation. All these ins tell us a bit about who we are and they give us information about the state of our being. So when we see these words in Christ, they tell us a little bit of who we are. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, if we were to read through all those verses right now, you look at it, and in the English, you get periods along the way. But when Paul wrote verses 3 through 14, if you were to read it the way that he wrote it in the Greek, it is one single long run-on sentence. It just begins, and it's like he can't stop. He just His thoughts just keep coming and flowing, and he writes the whole thing. And 11 times in there, he says, in Christ or in him. He just so wants you to know, right from the very beginning, he says these things about who you are. And so he begins in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and he talks about in Jesus, in Christ, joined to Jesus in relationship with him, who you are now. There is the fount of every blessing. Maybe you've heard that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. So when you read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. We talk so often about these different realms. We live in this earthly realm, and God calls us, Jesus said this, pray the heavenly realm into this realm, and and he's talking not about the kind of middle realm. There's three words for heaven. There's the words heavens and earth, they were created. There's the idea that these powers and authorities, Paul says at one point, exist in the heavenly realm, in this realm of the spirit that we don't see, that where the angels and, 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 and demons and, and those things are, which we, if we could just open the blinders or open, pull the shades back, we could see. And then there's one other heaven. Paul at one point says, I have, I know a man who is gone, he's referring to himself, into the third heaven, which is the very throne room of God. So, 
So what he's basically saying is in these heavenly realms, not just in this earthly place, but in this realm where you exist, every blessing of God is yours. A better way to understand our identity is to think of the benefits that Paul outlines. And to take a moment to say, what is this every spiritual blessing? What are these benefits that are yours that, in a sense, inform a bit more of who you are? And so the first one that he kind of shares with us as we go through this passage in in Ephesians, and I'll just kind of touch on some of these things, is this idea that you are eternally forever God's child. That's one of the first things he wants you to kind of understand after he says you have all these spiritual blessings in Christ. He wants you to know the change of identity. You are not only changed in your character, but you're given a new name. You're God's son, you're God's daughter. All that is Christ, he says, is ours because we've been adopted into the family of God. Isn't it wonderful that when Jesus was praying, he said, here's how I want you to pray. And he didn't say, what I want you to do is call him, you know, the very first thing when you you start to pray is say, oh, almighty God. He didn't say, oh, oh, most high. Oh, you who are far removed from us. Those weren't the words. He said, what you want to call God is the words Abba. Daddy, Papa, I don't know what term of infection, you know, of endearment you may have for God. Some people, when they pray, they say, Father God. It's a reminder that you're my father. But he wants you to address him in that way. And so as we read this passage of scripture, one of the blessings you have in Christ is that you are his child. You are his adopted child is what Paul wants us to know. And it was God's plan from the very beginning. If you read Ephesians 3 and 4, those verses in chapter 1, he says, For he chose us in Christ, kind of in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now you may not feel holy and blameless. It's not a matter of what you feel. It's a matter of what you believe. Because if you believe that, it will begin to change the way you see yourself and the way you act. In love, he predestined us, and he uses this special word for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given us in the one he loves, in Christ. And the phrase that's translated adoption to sonship is a technical term. In the Greek, it's actually a legal term. This idea of adoption to sonship was something that was used in the Roman day. And when you were to take and adopt someone in your, your, to your family, in, in, in Rome in that day, they have records that you would be adopted to sonship. A male heir in a Roman culture, this was the phrase you would use. And it would mean that as it happens, it represented an irrevocable contract. Once you were adopted, you could not be unadopted. This is the law of Rome. The adopted child became a member of the family as though he was a blood relation. And Paul is making it in the context of who he's writing, in in the context of people of that day, they understood this. And so he uses this technical legal term, which includes a change of family, a change of name, a change of home, of new responsibilities and privileges, which included actually the capacity of inheritance. So I was running the other day, and as I was running, I was thinking through this message, and, and I was just going, this is the coolest thing in the world. God has promised me, as his child, as his son, adopted into his family, that all this stuff is is mine. I own this church. I own the property it sits on. Did you know that? I own that property, that property, and that property. 
It's all in my inheritance. I may not be, you know, right now physically having documents to show you that. I'm running on the road and I'm just thinking to myself, you know what? This road's mine. (laughs) All of heaven and earth is ours. It changes the way you look at things. When you start to walk, you look at those flowers, you go, those beautiful flowers, thank you, God, they're mine. It's part of my inheritance. Because you're adopted as his son, as his daughter. There's a change of identity. It's all in capacity. It encompasses everything. It means everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Ephesians 1.5 in the Amplified Verse says, In love he predestined us and lovingly planned for us to be adopted to himself as his own children through Jesus Christ. In accordance with the kind intention and the good pleasure of his will. No one had to talk God into it. This was something he thought of long before you were ever born. He was adopting you that you would be one who would would have the character of Christ formed in you because you become his child. So to be in Christ means that all that is Jesus is yours eternally, forever. You are family. You are God's child. In Christ, you can never be severed from his love. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, the Passion Translation, which was read earlier. For it was always his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children. I like, I like to read the different versions. They just bring out different sides of it. Through our union with Christ, because you're joined to Jesus, the anointed one. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. So that his tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace, his incredible goodness, that he would hand out his inheritance to you and to me. For the same love, and I love this, that he has for his beloved one, Jesus, he has for you. You need to constantly remember that. Throughout the day when you don't feel loved. The same love, this is the truth, that he has for his beloved one, Jesus. He has for you. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. And you go, but I don't, I don't act like who I am all the time. That's true. But as you trust and continue to obey, as you recognize when you failed and you just ask forgiveness and walk in it again, you begin to see changes occur, and it takes time. But there's something about being God's son or child. It gives you this sense of confidence as you walk with him. You know he loves you. And as you follow him, you know that he will never, ever sever you from himself. You are his adopted child. You are joined and united with Christ. So you're eternally forever um, a child of God in family, in his family. The next thing I want you to just notice as we go through this is, is you are eternally forever free. You no longer have to prove yourself. You're free. You're done with those days of trying to measure up, performing to be accepted, hoping you'll be loved. Wishing that in some way you could just be good enough. Because not even transfer, you're not a son, you're a daughter. It's not about being good enough or measuring up. You're free to be who God's created you to be, who he has placed within you. He has caused you to be free so you don't have to try and prove yourself anymore. 
In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your life is perfectly righteous before God. And the riches of God's grace have been lavished on you. Ephesians 1, 7. Listen to this. In him, we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? You've been bought with a price. You have redemption. You've been bought back. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. Redemption means that you have been bought. You are free. You are free. You no longer have to prove yourself. Ephesians 1, seven, the Passion Translation says, Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption by his blood, the total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. Jesus has qualified you. It comes out of the grace of God the Father, his love for you. He sets you free. And so he basically says, now live according to who you are. You are God's child. You will never ever be severed from his love. You are forever free from the need to perform and you get to enjoy the freedom of living before God under his favor. Completely free. You don't have to prove yourself to God or to anyone. Now I think that's kind of a a powerful truth and and the way that I'd love for you to understand it is if you think of for a second um, American Idol, have you ever watched this show? Are you familiar with that show American Idol? Because it kind of gives you an idea of what this is like. You see, in American Idol, what you have is a group of people, and they're all contesting to try and be the final one who is kind of the idol, so to speak, of America. And these singers are, are brought before a panel of judges, and they perform. They, they seek to prove how good they are and how gifted and talented they are. And they're introduced, and they think, hoping that they will someday be good enough in, in, in order to go to the next round. And so you go from round to round. And they're all nerves when they do this. You can just see sometimes they're just, they're, they're full of nerves. Because they know that if, if one single missed note could cost them the entire competition. Yet winning could change their life forever. And so at the end of each session, when the competitions are over, the vocalist is crowned, the winner gets an interesting thing. So the person is finally chosen. This one has proven themselves to be the best. This person is chosen. They're crowned with a crown. And they get kind of like a victory lap. Although it's not they're running around. They get a chance just to sing one more song. And the person, let's say it's a woman, wins. And she's given the microphone. And she sings this last time. But there's a huge difference in the way she sings. She's no longer singing to try and win. She's not a bunch of nerves. She's just won it all. She feels great. She sings a song that she loves, and she sings it from her heart. She's no longer in a contest. She's not trying to prove anything to anyone or to anybody. And she stands up there. She's chosen. She's honored. She performs from her heart. She's free of anxiety and pressure. And she uses her gift of singing just to benefit everyone else and to sing out of her own sense of just joy. No longer singing for approval. That's the picture of the freedom you have been given in Christ eternally and forever. You have already been chosen. You are in Christ. You have been crowned with Christ. All the love that the Father has for Jesus, he has for you. It's all been completed, completely accomplished. All the sin has been completely canceled and removed. You are before him holy and blameless in his sight. You have nothing to prove to him or to anyone else. Think about that for a second. Done are the days where you are trying to work for his approval. You now work 
from approval. There's a huge difference. You are now working from a standpoint of, of knowing that God has affirmed you and you work from that affirmation of his love. So then now as you live, it's not you're trying to prove to someone that you're really good and you're doing it right. You now live out of your heart, which is this new heart that God has given you, which has changed from a heart that desires to be selfish. Because when you come to a place where you understand your sin, you understand how you have hurt God and you hurt others and you don't want to live that way anymore. You say, God, I just can't get out of this. And he says, great, I will give you my Holy Spirit. I will put my heart in you. And that heart will want to serve. And that heart will want to grow. And that heart will want to love people. Even people that are your enemies. You don't love them because they're likable. You now have my heart. And you begin to love people because you have your love, that love of mine in you. And now, yeah, you have a battle at times. But the the, the truth is, this is who you are. And this is God created you to be. You no longer live for approval, but you live from approval. And you're free to be who God has created you to be. And you're free to love and serve others with the gifts God has given you. You begin to start saying, God, boy, you, you wired me in a certain way and you maybe created me in a certain way and I like to do this. I'm passionate. Boy, could I do this to help other people? And he goes, yeah, of course you can. You're on the victory lap. You don't have anything to prove. You have nothing to fear. You are loved as a child of God and you're free. Forever free. Eternally forever free. But you're also eternally forever victorious. Every win in Christ is yours. Every win that he has accomplished, every triumph he has accomplished, is yours. I like to think of it this way, because it's kind of a representative thing. Think of a sports team, if you would. Uh, and let's go with the Twins, because they've been winners. They're doing great, right? How many are happy with the Twins? We could go with the Cubs, but you guys are a little too far away from that. So we'll just go with the Twins. Let's, let's, just, let's just say that Max Kepler on the Twins baseball team hits a walk-off home run to win the game. And, and what's interesting about his win is that win is credited to the whole team. The entire team gets it. Even the players sitting on the bench are excited because the win is credited to them. And we don't say that Kepler won today, do we? Anybody, you don't hear the news from Kepler won today. No, they always say the twins won. And what's really amazing is not only does Kepler win and the guys on the bench win, but guess what? Everybody in the stands are what? Winners. It's an amazing thing because you say to someone, we won. And then all of a sudden you start to think about it. The guy sitting on the sofa who's got his feet up in the chair, who's watching the game, he's a winner. He's pumped up. He's excited. And then you go to work the next day and you're talking with someone. They go, oh, why? Oh, we, did we win yesterday? He didn't know what's going on. He's a winner. <laughs> what? Everyone who participates in this team is a winner. Everyone who participates in Christ, who joins himself to Jesus in relationship to Jesus. Everyone who comes to him and says, Jesus, you, you know the sin in my heart. You know that I, I need you to be the kind of loving person that I want to be. To be the person you created me to be. And he says, oh, because of the cross, I have actually won all this stuff for you. I've forgiven you. 
It's called a representative win. And to be in Christ means that Jesus represents any person who will join himself to him. And anyone joined to Jesus participates in the victory. So that you could be talking to someone and they go, what? What? You mean Jesus won the love of God for me? That I'm free? I don't have to, to work for approval anymore, but I can work from approval? Are you, are you kidding me? He goes, yep, you're a winner. He goes, I'm a winner. I want to be with this Jesus. I want to walk with this Jesus. I want to join myself to this Jesus and his cause and, and become like him and do the things that he has commanded and called us to do. The story of David and Goliath is another one that gives you this idea of representative win. Think of the story of David and Goliath. It's this interesting thing that only two warriors fight in a fight. And this would be true in history in different times, in different ages. The entire army would gather on either side and they would send out their best of their best to fight the best of the best. And whoever won would be the kind of winner takes all. So in 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 9, it says, choose for a, a man for yourselves. This is Goliath standing in front of him, this big gargantuan guy with the whole army behind him. Israel cowering, kind of wondering, why we don't have anyone that big. And he says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So young David represented all of Israel and one fought for all and he was a representative and David's victory was credited. It was imputed to the whole army, to all of Israel. All of Israel, we could say, was in David. You are in Christ. Christ represents you. And Paul uses some interesting terms because he has to make up new words. This is such a new kind of idea. Uh, There's no words to describe this kind of new reality. So he takes some Greek words and and he he talks about um, us being crucified with Christ. It's one word in the Greek now that was never before. He talks about us being so united with, joined with Jesus that we're buried with him, that we're raised with Christ. And he actually goes on to say that we're seated with him in the heavenly realm. He has to give a whole new vocabulary to help us understand that this idea that you have been crucified with Christ, which means you, your, your sin has been put on the cross, you have died, you have been buried, that old self has been buried, now you have been raised with this new self, this new Christ in you, and now you are actually seated in the heavenly realms. Remember I was talking about that earlier? This idea that you are now not, you are people of two, two realms. You're the only people on earth that live in two realms. People joined to Jesus in Christ because in Christ you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. And where is Jesus seated? He's seated in the throne of God, in the very throne of God. So he's in the third heaven. You are in that sense in Christ in the third heaven. And so what's really interesting about this is think about the implications that this triumph has put you in the presence of God. It changes if you think about it, your identity, if you think about who you are, how you pray. We pray to God, right? We bring our requests. We're told to do that. You bring a request, you bring those things to God. But there's something really interesting about this. When you're in the seated, in, in the heavenly realm of Jesus, you also begin to pray and you start to pray his will with God into earth. You begin to start realizing your prayer is not just about some requests, but you are with God in the heavenly realms. And as you begin to pray, you begin to listen and say, God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, what is it you want me to pray for this person? How do you want me to pray? And he speaks it into your heart and you speak it out. And when you speak it out, you change things. You kind of go, well, what is prayer? Prayer is powerful. 
That's why they say everything that happens in this realm begins really in the spiritual realm. Because in Christ, you're seated with him and you're beginning to listen to him. And as you listen to him, you pray forth what is true in the throne room of God in heaven. He's called you to participate with him. That's what Jesus did. I was with a guy who I met in Ethiopia a number of years ago who now lives here in Eden Prairie. And I had lunch with him and his parents, his dad specifically, in Ethiopia, was in prison during the communist reign. He was tortured. That family learned how to pray. We went with a group that I was over there with, and were in their home, and their home was probably about as big as this. And, and we prayed with them. And the authority in which they prayed, I had never experienced before. This man knew God. He had actually spent time in the throne room. And so his name, this, this young man that I met, his name is Daniel. And I had lunch with him. And he, I said, how you doing, Daniel? He goes, that's good. And he was telling me about his parents. And he said, you know, my mom, every time she calls or I call her, you know what she asked me? Are you walking on your knees? I love that phrase. Are you walking on your knees? Daniel told me, you know, when I came to the U.S., I went to church and, and, and I went to different groups and they would pray. And they would pray for about five minutes. And then they'd stop. He goes, back home we were just getting started. If you really want to hear from the Spirit of God, you just can't do kind of a rushed kind of prayer thing. You have to be in the throne room. You have to quiet your heart. You have to take time to listen. We have groups that are learning to pray. They spend an hour or so. You go, an hour? Yeah, hours or more. Daniel told me they spend about three hours or more in prayer. Do you know in Iran right now, it is one of the, in, in, in certain areas in Iraq, Iran, there is some of this explosion of the church right now. And do you know that the church pastors are called to pray at least three to four hours a day? If they keep it up, they'll get the six like I am, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're eternally forever God's child. You're eternally forever free. You are eternally forever victorious, which means it changes the way you look at so much in life. It changes the way that you see yourself you are not some helpless person. You have within Christ, in him, in the heavenly realm, the power to change the atmosphere in places you go. Your attitude changes. Your words can change things. Your smile can change things. You are in Christ. You are a culture changer. You are a person who can change the world that you live in. And you're eternally and forever safe. I'm going to ask the team to come forward because I just want to share this last thing with you. We're going to just close time in worship. And so if the worship team comes, as I just share with you, we are eternally forever safe. And I want to share this with you because it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it's in Christ that you once heard the truth and believe that this is the message of your salvation. This is from the Message Bible. And you found yourselves home free. Okay, you're home. Signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. And the signet from God is the first installment of what's coming. Kind of like the, 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 the down payment is the Holy Spirit. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us. A praising and glorious, glorious life. And so no matter what the world throws at you. No matter the trials, the hardship, the loss. We're safe with God. There's an old hymn that says, We are safe and secure from all arms.
because knowing you are in Christ is crucial anytime you face trials and suffering. And you need to know in Christ because it rules out certain lies. It rules out lies like you're being punished, that God's condemning you. Because you know that in Christ, even though you don't know why God is allowing a time right now, you might be going, why am I, why this suffering? The one thing you do know is that God's will is for you and not against you. And he is not punishing you. It's all been done. In Christ, it's crucial to know in times of suffering. Horatio Spafford, some of you are aware of this story, was a prominent Chicago lawyer and a follower of Jesus Christ in the mid-1800s. He put his four daughters on a ship in the Atlantic. It was going across, and it was um, shipwrecked, and he lost all four daughters. And then he penned this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the words penned in his grief reveal that he remembered what it meant to be in Christ. Listen to these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, that's interesting, he's taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then he makes these interesting lines. He, he writes, my sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And you go, you might ask yourself, why in this grief does Spafford call to mind his own sin being nailed to the cross? It's because in those times when you suffer, you start wondering, God, do you not like me? Are you, are you angry with me? Don't you care? Are you punishing me? Tim Keller writes in his, in, in his book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, what has the idea that his sin being nailed to a cross got to do with his four daughters who are dead? Everything. Do you know Why? when things go wrong one of the ways you lose your peace is that you think maybe you were being punished but look at the cross all punishment fell on Jesus you may think God doesn't care but look at the cross it shows the depth of his love and the only way it can be well with your soul is remembering in Christ you are safe and secure and he loves you and what I I'm going to ask you to stand we're going to sing this song but what I want you to think of as we sing this song is Spafford had a choice how he would respond to this and there's no doubt he went through incredible pain and grief it does not take away the sorrow we are people who feel those emotions and hurt and you may be in that place but he still trusted and he continued to obey he wrote those words and I just think of myself to myself his trust and obedience in penning those words just think of all the people his his this hymn has impacted through the years so just remember who you are in Christ you may need to be in a moment where you're being taught again to say it is well it is well